spite of the heat and the accidents. Um, I'm very glad to be here at Skylight. I'm going to read to you from my new novel called Reputations. It's the, it's the story of a political cartoonist, which is a tradition um, that is very strong in Colombia. Um, cartoonists are widely followed political commentators. Some of them are very well respected. Some of them are feared by politicians. Um, and so is Javier Mayarino, my character. As the novel opens, he's being paid a tribute by the Ministry of Culture, so it's a big thing, it's a national thing. He's being, in a way, recognized after 40 years of drawing cartoons as a sort of um, moral conscience of the country, as one of the foremost political commentators, as an opinion maker, is the, the, the way we call these people, able to, to shape the, um, the political climate in the country. So... Um, he was not supposed to become a cartoonist. He was, he was an artist. He was, as a young man, he um, painted oils on canvas. He was very good at it. But life took, me, took him to the, um, um, down the road of a political commentator. Um, and uh, he began drawing these cartoons, feeling the, uh, the rush of adrenaline of seeing his work in the paper, until after some years he starts questioning himself. He starts thinking, why do I care? Why do I go on doing this? Um, I never get to meet the people who read my cartoons. I never get to really take the temperature of um, the world I'm trying to influence. Um, and so he starts asking himself, for what? That's when he received, in a single prodigious day, the answer to all his questions. He'd acquired the habit of walking around downtown in the afternoons, buying his daughter absurd stickers for an absurd album Magdalena, his wife, insisted she fill up or getting his shoes shined and talking politics with the bootblacks, or simply watching life with a sort of hunger that demanded he stay out on the streets instead of returning to his morning seclusion, take off his jacket and feel his arms brush up against other arms and pick up the smell of living bodies. That afternoon was a Tuesday, which was the day of the week Mayarino would go to the Avianca building to collect his mail from his mailbox, the metallic, gray, deep little box that brought him boundless pleasure like a magician's hat does a child. And later sit in some nearby cafe to read his magazines and answer his letters. He arrived at 7th Avenue by the National Library, and from there, along the eastern sidewalk, he began to walk south, sometimes noticing the noisy, disorderly, relentless city, sometimes so distracted that the building came into view almost unexpectedly, its long, straight lines penetrating the sky and struck on a sunny afternoon by a dense light that seemed not of this world. 
As he went in, his hand would already be feeling for his keychain in his pocket and separating out the mailbox key so he wouldn't have to search for it in front of the cemetery wall of postboxes. And that's how it had gone that time. Mayarino made his way through the corridors, through their whitish light, which drew circles under everyone's eyes, and turned to the little gray door. He stretched out his arm and his precise hand, that hand that could draw exact 90 degree angles without any instruments, and placed the tip of the key into the lock the way a medieval knight would have put the tip of his lance against his rival's chest. But the key did not go in. He thought at first that he'd gone to the wrong box. He leaned down toward the little door and looked at the number on the metal tag with all its digits. The same as ever. The ones Mayarino knew by heart. He hadn't gotten it wrong. The revelation arrived late like a careless guest. There was a shadow or texture that made him look more closely at the metallic surface. And only when he was inches away from the lock did he realize it had been blocked up with chewing gum. It was a hardened paste, it must have been there several days, that filled the slot without overflowing the edges, a conscientious piece of work. Mayarino touched the paste with the tip of the key, probed, pushed, scratched a little, tried a carving movement with his wrist, but got nowhere. The dried gum paste remained firm. Hey, what a nasty trick to play on someone, said a voice, and Mayarino turned his head to find a gold tooth glinting in the middle of an unshaven face. No way to fix that, huh? People have no respect these days. And Mayarino soon found himself climbing a mottled stairway, walking till he reached a counter, handing over his ID and watching as a petite woman opened drawers and closed them again produced a photocopy of a form from somewhere and asked if Mayarino would be paying in cash or by check. Turned a deaf ear when Mayarino protested and said he hadn't lost the key, that somebody had put chewing gum in the lock. And the woman told him it was all the same to her and how would he be paying cash or check. Then there were stamps in purple ink, carbon paper, time wasted in a hard and hostile plastic chair, and finally a shout ringing against the concrete walls. Mayarino, Javier Mayarino. A skinny, grief-stricken locksmith, his overalls smelling of improperly dried clothes, went back with him to face the rebellious mailbox took a series of unnameable tools from his leather belt, the medals giving off sparks under the neon lights. And what followed was the violation of the lock, or what Mayarino perceived as a violation, a violent and treacherous penetration of his private life, in spite of the fact that he'd given his authorization and consent, in spite of his being present during the whole process. He felt something like physical pain at the breaking of the lock, at the snap of the little door. He was saddened by the vulnerability of his collection of magazines looking at him imploringly from the shadowy depths. He wanted to leave, 
be home already in his refuge, reading with a glass of beer, hearing or sensing the reassuring presence of his wife and daughter. But he still had to witness the installation of the new lock and get the new keys and sign more papers and put tips in faceless hands before going back out onto 7th Avenue, carrying his leather bag slung across his chest, the back of his neck sweaty, his eyes tired from so much darkness. Later, he would think it had all begun with that tiredness or the disorientation that always overwhelmed him after contending with the senseless bureaucracy of this country. Or maybe it was just the white color of the envelope, that immaculate white with no address, no writing of any kind, no stamps, no blue and red stripes that revealed a letters having arrived from abroad. He'd started taking the magazines out of his bag, impatient to begin leafing through them, and had his hands stuck inside it, fingers moving, as if through a card catalog. Head looking down to see the covers. When he noticed the corner sticking out between the pages. He stopped in the middle of the square, looked at the front and back of the envelope, then opened it. Javier Mayarino read the typed text of the letter with neither date nor address. With your warping of the truth, you have assaulted and discredited the armed forces of our republic, playing into the hands of the enemy. You are an, an unpatriotic liar, and we hereby notify you that the patience of those who are loyal to our beloved country is wearing thin. We know where you live and where your daughter goes to school. We will not hesitate to punish with the harshest severity any further infringements against our honor. On the last line, over to the right, with no regards, no sincerely, no yours faithfully, a single word that seemed to be shouting from the page, Patriots. The first thing he did when he got home was to show Magdalena the letter. And he knew she was genuinely worried when she started making fun of the wording and grammar. Between the two of them, they tried to remember the last cartoon he'd drawn on a military subject. They had to go back several weeks to a series of three drawings in which a disconsolate horse was talking to a woman who was handling some iron structures. Mayarino had drawn those scenes after Felisa Burstin, a Bogotá sculptor famous for working with scrap iron, had been accused of subversive activities, imprisoned in the army's stables, manhandled and humiliated, and later forced into exile. Magdalena and Mayarino propped the originals up on the long living room sofa and spent a good while looking at them, as if wishing they could vanish from the recent past. That night they were so frightened that they dragged a mattress into their bedroom so Beatriz, who had just turned six, could go to bed there. And the family slept like that, heaped up in the insufficient space, breathing stale air all night with their pressed wood door securely locked. Days of paranoia would follow. Mayarino looking over his shoulder on the city street and returning home before dark. But later, when the memory of the threat began to fade away, 
What they'd remember would be the reaction of Rodrigo Valencia, the editor of the newspaper, who burst out laughing on the other end of the phone line when Magdalena called him the day after Mayarino received the note to tell him what had happened. Mayarino watched Magdalena furrow her brow, the telephone stuck to her ear, then heard her faithfully relay the message. Rodrigo says, congratulations, you finally made it. He says, you're nobody in this country until somebody else wants to hurt you. Thank you. So, we're back to the present, to the beginning, uh, to, the, to the present time of the story for this next and last section. Um, after the tribute that was paid to him, Mayarino receives the visit from a uh, young woman who pretends she's a journalist and uh, in order to get into his house. After some minutes, she confesses the truth. She's not a journalist. She's not there for an interview. She just needed to confirm that that, in fact, was the same house she had been in 28 years before, when she was just seven, and something that changed her life happened there. And so Mayarino is looking at her. There are women who do not preserve on the map of their face any trace of the little girl they once were. Perhaps because they've made great efforts to leave childhood behind, its humiliations, its subtle persecutions, the experience of constant disappointment. Perhaps because something's happened in the meantime. One of those private cataclysms that don't mold a person but rather raise them like a building and force them to reconstruct themselves from scratch. Mayarino looked at Samantha Leal and hunted in her features for some shape, the curve of the frontal bone where it reaches the space between the eyebrows, the way the earlobe joins the head. Or perhaps an expression he'd seen on the face of the child 28 years ago. And he could not, that, that child had gone, as if she'd refused to go on living in that face. Although it was true, on the other hand, that he'd seen her only once, and over the space of a very few hours. And perhaps his memory, which had always allowed him to recall the essential features of any face with a surgeon's precision, was now starting to deteriorate. If that were the case, the deterioration could not be less opportune. For now Samantha Leal, from whose face a little girl had vanished, was urgently asking him to remember that little girl and her visit to this house in the mountains in 1982. And not just that, but also the circumstances of that long ago visit, the names and distinguishing marks of those present that afternoon, everything Mayarino saw and heard, but also, if possible, what the rest of them saw and heard. Remember, please, Samantha Leal said to him, I need you to jog your memory. And he thought of that curious turn of phrase, to jog a memory, as if memory were something we could take out and exercise, or nudge into action by way of certain well-chosen materials, by the mere effort of physical work. 
Mayarino knew it was not like that. And yet here he was now, trying to extract the sculpture from the stone, sitting in front of a woman awaiting an answer beside the now darkened window. The whole house leaned over the glowing city as if spying on it. Mayarino saw the luminous stitches against the black background, the city converted into a backlit, embroidered piece of fabric. And in the distance, floating in the night air, planes waiting their turn to land. And he thought about the men and women who at that moment were occupying those illuminated spaces and trying, like him, to remember. Remember something important, remember something banal, but always to remember. That's what we all devote ourselves to, all the time. That's where our meager energies go. It's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards, he thought again. And again he wondered where those words came from. That's what this was about, looking back and bringing the past toward us. Please remember, Samantha Leal had said to him. Bit by bit, memory by memory, Mayarino was remembering. Back then, he had just moved to the house in the mountains. The move had been more than a mere change of location, a kind of last resort, a desperate attempt to preserve, by way of the strategy of separation and distance, the well-being of his family. When had this moment begun brewing? With the anonymous threat, perhaps? With the violent imbalance that had followed it? For the first time, Magdalena had asked him the question that he silently asked himself every day. Was it worth it? Were the fear and the risk and the antagonism and the threats worth it? You see, I'm not sure, said Magdalena. I'm not sure it's worth it. You'll know, but think of our daughter and think of me. I don't know if it's worth it. Mayarino took her words as a betrayal, a tiny betrayal, but a betrayal in any event. Had the slow and imperceptible deterioration of their relationship started then? But it was impossible to say, thought Mayarino, impossible to spread the years of a marriage across a table, like a map, and draw a chalk circle around a precise moment. As the poet Silva had asked his doctor to draw a circle on the exact location of his heart. Of course, Silva, after visiting the doctor, arrived home, took off, took off his shirt, and shot himself in the exact center of the circle. That's why he'd sought the anatomy lesson to commit an efficient suicide. Mayerino would have wanted something else, to repair, to eliminate from the chain of life the harmful moment, the first comment that was no longer impatient but hostile, the first reply bathed in sarcasm, the first glance empty of all admiration. Yes, that was it. The admiration had fallen from Magdalena's eyes. He realized that his wife's admiration had always nourished him. And finding himself suddenly without it felt too much like a public slap in the face. The revelation struck him at, as at once fascinating and cruel. The experience of the need, the loss of the perfect independence Mayarino had cultivated all his life and balanced him more than he would have expected. 
I won't get into bed with anybody, he used to say. It was one of his catchphrases, a behavioral guide, and Mayarino had turned to it several times to justify himself. When his cartoon was an attack on some friend of the family or an associate of his father's, ruining a business perhaps, raising doubts about his father, presenting him to the world as a man incapable of earning the loyalty of his son, Mayarino received the angry complaints with strained indifference, putting his art and his commitments above mere personal observances. Merely personal? Magdalena said once, merely personal? But these people are our friends, Javier. Well, let's change friends, he replied. And family? Should we change families too? If it comes to that, said Mayarino, my credibility is at stake. My reputation is at stake, he thought without saying. And the sacrifices had worked. His reputation was there, his good reputation and his prestige. Mayarino had earned them the hard way. He didn't get into bed with anybody. The sacrifices. Who had used that word for the first time and in what circumstances? It was true that they no longer went to any of the posh restaurants in the North End for they ran the risk of bumping into the victim of a cartoon or their more or less aggressive relatives. And it was true that a sort of permanent tension had settled over Sunday lunches with the family, a general and unnameable tension, like the feeling that overwhelms us when there is someone dying in the next room. But it was no less true, and this is how Mayarino felt, that the people, that abstraction, that host of vague, featureless faces, respected and loved him. And they need me, he said once. They need someone to tell them what to think. Don't be naive, Magdalena told him. People already know what they think. People already have their prejudices well formed. They, they want someone in authority to confirm their prejudices, even if it's the, uh, the mendacious authority of newspapers. There is your prestige, Javier. You give people the wherewithal to confirm what they already think. She thought for a moment, or seemed to be thinking, then added, You could have been a great artist, a botero, an obregón. You chose to be something else. You chose to be this, someone who gets us into trouble. When had Magdalena changed so much? When had she stopped being the independent woman who had confronted a newspaper editor's censorship? I don't want my daughter to grow up surrounded by people who have fallen out with her, Magdalena said. I don't want her to annoy people who've never even seen her. Perhaps that's when Mayarino put the accusation into words. Don't bring the child into this, he said to her. The problem is much simpler. The problem is that you no longer admire me. Magdalena's only reply was a horsey snort that concentrated in that instant all the contempt in the world. Mayerino would always remember the vehement urge to look for Beatriz, to see if she had witnessed the scene, if she'd perceived the slides. It amazed him that his daughter, just turned seven, could share with him the spaces of the wreckage without realizing that her life was becoming a different one. 
It amazed him that her small, long-legged body could move through the room so confidently that her eyes, under her arched brows inherited from her mother, scrutinized the world, the infinite world of her family, silently but intensely, in that ferocious and hungry apprenticeship of young life. And all without full awareness that those days would mark her forever perhaps sowing a hard seed of mistrust in her relationship with her parents, perhaps distorting from, from that moment on and forever her way of loving or being loved. Mayarino, meanwhile, went through his days feeling tired. And it seemed as though his body, moving through the familiar terrain of his house, was leaving bits of dry skin like a snake, like a leper. There was in the apartment an air of nervous tension or anxiety. When Beatrice began licking her hands because they were so dry, Mayarino knew it was time to move out for his well-intentioned presence that inertia of years as a family was only making things worse. He should go. One night in front of the television, he told Magdalena, I'll move out for a while, a short while. He said. Magdalena agreed. Just for a while, she said, to see what happens. It's better this way, better for everyone. We have to think of Beatrice, she said. Yes, he said, we have to think of Beatrice. It didn't take long to find a house in the mountains. It was a unique opportunity, for the property was part of a disputed inheritance that would take some three years to be ruled on, meaning that Mayarino, with the help of the newspaper's lawyers, was able to sign an unusual and unusually favorable contract. The arrangement seemed made to measure for him. Mayarino was sure his separation from Magdalena would be short when he tried to imagine how long it would take on the basis of what had happened with other couples they knew, he thought in terms of months, maybe one year, two at most. At the end of June, between cartoons of a scandalously sacked Argentine soccer player and of the British Prime Minister, the toothy smile, medieval armor, flag planted on a desert, on a desert island, Mayarino bought a bed for 30,000 pesos and a color TV from Sears, packed up a couple of thousand books in cardboard boxes, and covered his desk and instruments in bubble wrap. He also took personal charge of the collection of framed fetishes he had, the phrase, a stinger dipped in honey that a carpenter had seared into a panel of wood, his domier reproductions, the legislative belly and past, present, future, the oil painting of Magdalena with Beatrice in her arms like a Bellini virgin, and the Rendon drawing, an old birthday present in which a commissar asks a communist if he was planning to kill the president with those bombs, and the communist replies, oh no sir, we were hoping the president would be killed by remorse. Everything was done carefully the way people move a table with a vase on it. Nobody wanted to commit a blunder, to be responsible for damage that could not be mended. They explained to Beatrice that from now on she'd have two houses, two bedrooms, two places to play, 
and she listened to them with patience but without looking at them, while popping plastic bubbles with her intensely concentrating thumb and forefinger. She pretends it doesn't matter to her, but she's suffering, said Magdalena. And Mayerino, but it's better this, it's better this way. And Magdalena, yes, it's better this way. When the little girl's school holidays began, the move was complete. Beatriz lay down for the first time in her new bed, wrinkling her last day's uniform against the sheets with trembling eyelids from too many farewell party suites. And Mayarino stayed there with his head on her pillow, <coughs> breathing her breath, <coughs> until he could tell she'd fallen asleep. He thought he'd get a group of friends together to celebrate the move. Not because the move was worthy of celebration, but because a public social event would normalize the situation in the girl's eyes, take away all the embarrassing aspects, convert it into something acceptable she could talk to her friends about. He made a few calls, asked his guests to make some more, told Beatriz to invite one of her classmates. The following Sunday, at lunchtime, The new house was teeming with people, and Mayarino congratulated himself for having that splendid idea. Nothing would have allowed him to anticipate what happened next. Thank you. Thank you. I think we have some minutes for questions, yes. Um, I'd like your reference to time and how in fiction time positions itself backwards. And I'm just wondering what theory or what thinking you're relying on when you uh, talk about time. It's one of the great uh, themes of the book, um, our relationship with memory, our relationship with the past, and um, the fact that this is so unreliable. Um, on that night... 28 years before before the action starts the, the novel opens up in 2010 28 years before um, something happened in that house to a little girl called Samantha Leal and now she's come back to ask the cartoonist to, um, to remember what happened but it turns out they both have only one tool at their disposal to find out what happened 28 years before, and that's their memory. And this is when one of the great um, uh, reflections of the novel begins. Uh, memory is the only door we have into our past, and it is not always reliable. And so the characters discover this fascinating thing um, that the past is not fixed. We grow up with the idea that the past is you know, written in stone and it's the only thing we can be certain of. The past, lo que pasó, pasó, as a great bolero says. Um, my character discovered that's not true. They discover the past moves around, the past can change, the past is unreliable, memory is unreliable. And so that becomes uh, one of the great subjects of the book. The past is always in relationship with the future. And it's always indicted in the future. This is, this is, there's a moment in the novel in which a, a character remembers something that um, 
George Steiner, the great uh, philosopher, said to me. Um, he once told me about this tribe in Central America. I don't remember if it was Paraguay or Bolivia, someplace like that. There is a tribe of very few people who are disappearing. And in their language, the future is what we don't know, right? And since we don't know the future, then it is behind us because we can see it. The past is what we do know. We already know what happened there. So it's something we can see. So the past is in front of us, which is obviously the uh, completely different from our understanding in our language of the past and the future. And his whole point had nothing to do with the novel. His whole point was how it, when this tribe disappears, this way of looking at the world will disappear too, and that's a shame. And this is why we should protect languages, etc., etc. But for me, it was a, a revelation um, of the, the, the difficult relationship we have between our past and our future, and how um, this uh, individual relationship we have can also turn into a social, even a national uh, relationship um, and this is what all my other novels talk about how how the past of a society of a nation has a direct relationship with its future how uh, as Carlos Fuentes the great Mexican novelist used to say um, there's no living future with a dead past this means that we have to keep the past alive in stories, in novels, in order to be able to move on. Yeah. Hi. Uh, first of all, thank you for your reading. Thank you. Uh, I was wondering if you could share with us uh, some of your thoughts. I read, your, uh, I read the book, and I was thinking, as I was reading it, how you know, shame is the other face of you know, a reputation and a credibility, right? And it's the credibility of the spirit. Yeah. And shame, you know, keeping it for the free. Meet the congressman. Uh, um, I, um, I thought I, one of the underlying themes um, in your book, or what I got, was how there's this, um, it's creating this cartoon from a, from a side of authority. Yeah. Right? And yeah. And the fact that at, at some point he, he says that he doesn't have a computer. Um, I'm thinking nowadays, what what would the power of a political satirical cartoon lie when we have a politician who is hardly shameless on the one hand? <laughs> yeah. uh, and then on the other, how these reputations or this shaming has been decentralized yeah. on the internet? Yeah. You know, and, and so what would, what would be the role of the yeah. cartoonist? I'm, I'm just thinking uh, more in the Mexican context, context that I'm familiar with. Yeah, Posada and this whole iconography that the country kind of yeah. created, and it, now it's known worldwide. Yeah. And I took another uh, with an evolution in time, it has to do with a, with a, with a tradition. Uh, in in the Latin American tradition, there's a strong influence of the French uh, journalistic tradition of the 18th century, in which cartoonists were very powerful. This guy Domier, who I was, who who, who is one of the favorites of my cartoonists, he 
he drew cartoons in which he ridiculed the king of France and he got away with it in the 18th century um, and the 19th century. He drew 19th century. He drew cartoons of Louis Philippe and he got away with it. Um, this is something we have inherited in Latin America. It's not so strong, I think, in in, in the English-speaking world. I don't know why. It's one of those things that temperaments change from country to country. But in Latin America, these these uh, these people actually have a power to shape the political debate. Um, in Colombia, right now, they're they're very well respected. The best of them, they're they're feared. Um, one of them is uh, a friend of mine. Uh, he's about 50 years old. And um, he told me the story that ended up in the novel on how a very powerful general in the Colombian military who had been his, his victim in cartoons for a very long time um, called him to ask for a meeting. Now, the powerful general asks the cartoonist for a meeting and not the other way around. And uh, they met and he said, look, you have drawn cartoons of myself with my crooked teeth, with my old glasses that look like Pinochet. Well, I've had a dental treatment. I've changed my glasses, and you still draw me as before. Please don't go on drawing me like that. My daughter's making fun of me. My wife complains. Please don't do that. And the, um, the cartoonist said, well, in general, that money was down the drain. I will keep on drawing you as before because this is this is your image uh, to me. So the, what I'm trying to explain is that the the power of these people is still there. The um, um, the respect uh, that public figures have for them is still there in our countries. When the French translation of this book was published. Um, I went there to France and I talked about the book and people used to say this is not true, this is not uh, we don't understand how this can happen, that a cartoonist can have such a power can receive threats can be a menace to a society we just don't get it three months later the Charlie Hebdo massacre happened and so I began getting all these emails very sad emails saying well now we get it Yes. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I get very much involved in these in these two translations and the languages I can actually read and have a have a say in. Um, I've developed this very close relationship with both translators. We work together. Uh, the words are, are, are all, uh, I mean, the credit is all theirs, but um, while they're translating, they ask questions, and so it, I take the chance to improve, with their help, sentences um, whose little translation might not be the best. So they know that for me the sound, the tone, the music of, of, of the sentences is very important. So if the best translation they can come up with doesn't sound that well, they pass pass it on to me so that we make changes to adjust it um, and to try to make it sound better. So so I have a close relationship with them and uh, it's something I enjoy doing. 
I used to earn a living as a translator for about five years. Um, mostly of dead people, so I didn't get to ask them questions. Uh, John Dos Passos and uh, John Heresy and people like that. But um, I know how difficult this is. How difficult and how respectable. It's, it's, um, it's one of the most important trades in the world, uh, uh, translation. Um, at least I know, and I've, I've said this before many times, that without translation for the Greek, for instance, I could not describe the political reality of my country because the two most important words in my country come from the Greek, politician and idiot. <laughs> If I hadn't those words, I wouldn't be able to describe the political situation in my country. And that all comes from translation. Yeah. Another uh, question building off that. Um, your relationship to language is very physical and there's some psychological uh, realism which is very passionate yes. here. Um, I'm wondering if you, you do aspire to this relationship to language or you feel um, the theme is describing the language or if you, the cultural relationship you have to language. Or yeah. Um, well, language changes a little bit from book to book, depending obviously on the narrator who's telling the story. And in this one, a very interesting, ha interesting thing happened to me. I realized that I was looking at the world through the eyes of somebody who doesn't deal in words, but in images. So the, the language became much more um, visual. This novel, as opposed to my other books, deals more in, in Uh, metaphors, uh, visual metaphors. Um, obviously, the, the the cartoonist is looking at the world in terms in terms of shapes, of lines. He describes people in terms of the shapes he sees on their faces, but also the world. The world we look at through his eyes is described in terms of of that physical. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, well, so then that brings me to maybe thinking about history and history's relationship to memory, because if memory is one door into the past, yeah. then history is a very public door into the past, Yes. if equally fabricated in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but most of our histories are written in words, and it's most of the way that we interact with the past is through text. So I'm wondering how someone's sense of history shifts as they think of the world more imagistically? Well, um, this doesn't necessarily have a presence in, in the novel, but it's very interesting what you're saying because this, this is actually one of the great subjects of my other books. Um, perhaps the great difference between this book and my previous novels, and particularly The Sound of Things Falling and The Informers, although the other one too, um, is that this is the most, the less historical. Uh, the relationship, the, the idea of the past is always important in my books. It's, it's like, it's one of my demons, as, as Mario Vargas Llosa describes your obsessions as a writer. Uh, but in this case, it's a private memory they're trying to look for, right? Private memories, a, a, a private door into the, the past of the characters. In the other books, it's, 
the relationship between the public past, that thing we call history, in the sound of things falling, it's the, uh, the drug wars in the 80s, in the informers, it's the presence of, of the German immigrants in Colombia during the Second World War, the, the Jewish immigrants, the Nazi sympathizers or propagandists, all in the same place, the same little, little place in Latin America. Um, so in those books, I was trying to explore how the how the public, uh, the public story, how history impinges on private lives. In this one, it's the other way around. It's somebody who has an influence on public life um, through a certain work he does. But the novel tries to explore how that work is also subject to the fears and anxieties and shortcomings uh, of this private individual. So how are private uh, temperament and fear and anxieties can actually shape the public world. So it's the other way around from my rest, the rest of my novels. Um, but in any case, it's all about stories. Uh, what we know as history is just one story among many, just one version of uh, the past among many, and it was narrated to us by somebody. It's a narration. It's, it's a story. So um, uh, this is one of the uh, of the themes in in the secret history of Costaguana, another one of my books. Um, the idea that all history is a story told by somebody, and so um, it. Uh, the narrator has an agenda, prejudices, uh, the ability to highlight certain things and to suppress other things. And um, uh, this is what the characters discover, how, how ultimately unreliable uh, a common version of history can be. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, go ahead, please. I just want to suss that out a little bit, because I was having a conversation this morning about a playwright, Edgar Alvey, who recently passed. Mm. And, um, That's right, he passed away. A brilliant young writer, I know Hilton Owls, who wrote um, a, a really striking piece about uh, his body of work. Uh -huh. And um, uh, my friend was saying he noticed the violence. He was always struck by the violence now. Yeah. It was a time where the national narrative in the 50s was very so lucky, jolly, everything's um, shining and new. Yeah. And here was this violent language coming in from a preeminent playwright. Yes. And so I was, you know, I've been thinking a lot of macro and micro, and like uh, we're in a petri dish of our, pub, our, our violence and our, our public policy. And yeah. And we have to that um, narrative. And these private lives that were being expressed by the forefront of these artists. Yeah. So um, it's almost as if America's quest in imperialism was preempted by um, by this unavoidable clash in these private narratives. Yeah. And um, and uh, you know it. I, I really question our policy around the world, and then you know these bizarre violent happenings keep. Creeping up into the national consciousness. Yeah. You know, yeah. You seemingly out of nowhere in Fort Barrack. And um, I find it very interesting the domestic sphere, the violence that occurs in the domestic sphere. And um, it seems to really go along the line of 
what the national agenda is. Yeah. And I guess that's what you're really exploring, a lot of people are looking at right now. In a way, yes, in a way. And it's very interesting what you say about the 50s, because I've always thought that Albi is not the only one of those. Arthur Miller, right? Arthur Miller is another one of those who, yeah. These people were experts, I think, at at detecting the sort of under undercurrent of violence in a, in a world that was on the surface shiny and happy and and nice. Uh, but of course, this is the world of uh, the. Um, uh, An American Activities Committee. This is the world of McCarthy. Um, so, so there were symptoms on the surface of that, of that violence, and they. I mean, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is one of the most violent <laughs> plays. Uh, I mean, for me, it's just like Hamlet. Everybody dies in the end. Only they don't die. You don't see them die, but inside, it, this is what's happening. It's murder on stage. Um, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? It's so violent. And I have to share with you what made Hilton Al's piece so brilliant is what he says in this open. Um, and we celebrated that this was not us. Yeah. So he's on the forefront of this gay community and gay marriage, which is on Yeah. Which we're so proud of of honor. Yes. They were looking at this and understanding this was not us. Yeah. And that's just the heroic stance. It's, it's, yeah, you're quite right. Yes. Food for thought. Well, thank you, so thank you very much. No, thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure being here. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.